So Summer finds many people busy helping a child who has just graduated from high school and is preparing to leave the proverbial nest to go to college or pursue some other path in life. Target and Walmart, all of a sudden they start running all these ads and push the merchandise to the front of the store that has to do with getting your dorm ready and the snacks that your child will need. Moms and dads, let's face it, mostly moms, try to get all the things together so that their son or daughter will have everything that they need once they leave the security and safety of your roof. In August, the parents will say tearful goodbyes and endure the sadness and fear that comes from them just not being there every day. But ever so slowly, you start to come back to life and you FaceTime and you text with them and you find out they're doing pretty much okay and you realize that you were actually a person before they were born and somehow you still are and gradually that pain sort of subsides. And then they come home. And all the rules that you enforced during high school that kept your house kind of orderly and nice and running well somehow just don't seem to work right anymore. They don't really recall the rules that were in place before they left, that the dirty dishes go in the dishwasher, not just in the sink. The hours they keep are really interesting. Curfews don't really seem appropriate anymore, but it is helpful as a parent to know what hour of the night or morning they may choose to walk in your door. Now, on the flip side of this, because I do actually have some recollection of what it was like to be in college, it's tough to come home and live under your parents' rules once again. You've started to form ideas about how you function in this world, and none of them involve having to put your shoes somewhere other than the middle of the living room floor. And it certainly doesn't feel great to have to check in with your parent and let them know where you are and what you're up to. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, and this has nothing to do with my own experience this summer of having my now 21-year-old home just for a few short months. But the New Testament passage that Bill read from our lectionary today reminds me of this kind of tension. It happens when guardrails that serve to help us and guide us at some point become stifling and can be unhelpful if we don't let go, if we don't give people the freedom that they need to grow and become the people they're going to be. Paul is speaking, as Bill said, to the Galatians, who are being persuaded by a sect of Jewish believers that in order to be deemed faithful to God, to Christ, they need to now adopt a lot of the Jewish practices 
and specifically to be circumcised. Now, kids, if you want to know what circumcision is, and this will forever be my tagline, I'm sure it's going to be a great discussion for you to have over lunch with your parents. Now, this argument, specifically the one about circumcision, it happens repeatedly from Paul and other new members of the church. As Christ followers, it's easy for us to kind of look back and read these repeated arguments and think, what is the big deal here? Why do they keep fighting about all this stuff and these rules and the circumcision? But as the early church begins, these disagreements about interpretation and intention were bound to happen. So think about it this way. The disciples and the entire body of Jewish believers have been attempting to follow faithfully these laws from the Torah, the first five chapters of the Old Testament, for centuries. These are people who are good Jewish, faithful followers. They keep and live by these laws in all parts of life. Many of them still do today, and there is no, no shame in that at all. Now, so you combine that with the fact that the gap between Jews and Gentiles, or really any non-Jewish person, was pretty tremendous. Jews were raised to believe that if the shadow of a Gentile fell upon you as you walked by, you had to immediately go and take a ceremonial bath to remove the uncleanliness from you. You weren't permitted to enter the home of a Gentile, much less sit down, visit, and break bread with a Gentile. There was no marrying, no friendship, no mixing with non-Jews. You can imagine how upsetting it was to the apple cart to basically bring these two groups of people together in faith. And if you want to know who the Gentiles were, look in the mirror. That's us. So this historical hotbed is the reason that there were so many debates and even, hold your breath, a split among believers. Those like Paul and Silas and many others preached that God's salvation was now for all and any through Jesus Christ. Some other Jewish believers, even a few of the disciples, formed a sect of people who said, well, really, okay, they can be believers, but anyone besides a Jewish person coming to this new faith still needs to be circumcised, and many of the other rules about unclean food, not sharing the table with one another, those rules still apply to them now. So Paul addresses this fallacy in thinking in verse 23. He comes up with a metaphor about the role of the law that serves now as both prison and prison guard. The disciplinarian until Christ came to redeem us by faith. The word disciplinarian is the basis for the English word pedagogue. But in Roman and Greek families, the pedagogue was an individual, often actually a slave, 
whose entire job was to carefully supervise young children inside and outside the home. They weren't really a teacher, but an enforcer of the law, making sure that the children got to lessons on time and that they adhered to strict Jewish practices. It's not a really positive metaphor, but honestly, it's not negative either. After all, the laws given to Moses by God, and then the over 613 laws that are laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about everything that ranges from cleanliness, circumcision, food laws, clothing rules, these rules were meant to help and guide the Jewish people in the ancient world. They lived in a polytheistic world where people worshiped many gods and temple practices were often not great for your personal well-being. The problem really was not with the law. The problem became when people turned in this, this set of demands into a way of being acceptable to God. You couldn't be acceptable to God unless you met all of these demands, not the other way around. It was the result of being accepted by God that you practiced these laws. Now, I was, I, I should say I ended up being an English major in college. I didn't start out that way, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who went through more than one major in college. So I was an English major, and I couldn't help but nerd out in noticing that in the passage Bill read, Paul changes from this plural pronoun to singular pronoun in the last verses. So he starts out, he's saying, we and our, in those first two and a half verses, we were guarded so that we might be reckoned. But then suddenly, he switches to you. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you who were baptized in faith and in Christ put on a white garment, that symbolic righteousness of Christ. You were clothed in Christ. The we he's talking about is not only himself as a Jew, but all the people, the Hebrew people, for whom these laws were written, who entered into the first covenant of God through Abraham and then through Moses. The you, he then says, is not only this new church who have now entered into this different and new faith and covenant through Christ, but it's us, all of us. He says this, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you too are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to that very first promise. Paul is telling these Galatians that now their primary identity marker is in Christ. All the other things that they use to identify each other, all those nouns, 
they just fall away. The view that different groups are redeemed and are now equals under the umbrella of Christ would have been radical. And I said it would have been radical in Paul's day. It is radical in our day as well. It was revolutionary, a total upheaval of that ancient worldview. Now, it is somewhat ironic that Paul, who started out as Saul and was a Pharisee who tortured Christians, now finds himself arguing for this faith that he executed and terrorized Christ's followers for. He was not the first, and he won't be the last person to justify cruel behavior in the name of God. Today we celebrate Juneteenth, as well as Father's Day, but we commemorate on that day, Juneteenth, the official day that enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, were freed in 1866, almost a full two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. Slavery was a huge part of Paul's world, totally normal in that day, and it continued throughout time into new territories and countries, including our own. Many slave owners lifted their Bibles up and used scriptures to defend their right to own, punish, and often mistreat the slaves that worked for them. In some ways, like Saul, whose blindness and sin was lifted, and he was born anew into Paul, a devoted follower of Christ, we too finally opened our eyes to the horrors being committed in the name of Jesus Christ. As I've read and reread the final verse of the passage, I feel both hope and sadness. We are all redeemed in Christ and one in him. Christ doesn't see any divisions among us, which is difficult to picture but we sure do. Sometimes it seems that that's all we look for, the things that separate us, not unify us. We take ordinary things like what political party we vote for, where and how we worship, and in what church or denomination, what neighborhood we live in, what football team we root for, just things that make up who we are as people, and we allow them to define and separate us. I'll never forget the first time that I actually was conscious that I realized I was treating someone unkindly because they were different. I was in, I think, second or third grade. I was at a small private school down in South Shelby County. There were only maybe 13 or 14 kids in my class total. His name was Stephen. He was one of multiple siblings, and as a whole, his family was pretty eccentric. They looked a lot different from me and most of my classmates. They all had very dark, jet black hair, dark eyes, 
pale skin, and Stephen's name was average compared to the more odd names of his brothers and sisters. But the thing that made him stand out in our very middle-class suburban school was that his family was poor. His clothes weren't always clean, and they didn't always fit very well. His appearance was always usually unkempt, and he might be kind of dirty. My classmate seized on this fact, too, very quickly, as kids often do, and he became the object of bullying and teasing. He was, as one would imagine, defensive and mean and unkind in return, often picking on people before they had the opportunity to pick on him. I felt that tug within me to both join in with the others who were picking on him while at the same time knowing somehow it felt wrong. Now, I wish this was a story of how I then became his friend or stood up for him or didn't join with the other kids who were making fun of him. But it's not. It did change me, though. I've been able to recognize the Holy Spirit in that day, in that experience, urging me to have compassion. Although I ignored it that day, I've never forgotten the feeling. It's helped me to know and act, hopefully some days, definitely not all days, just a bit better. And it has helped me to know that I don't treat others with love, empathy, and understanding because of any rule that a teacher or boss or government or city or even Old Testament scripture tells me to, but because I receive the unwarranted, undeserved grace and love of Jesus Christ. Before we leave today and go on with our day and hopefully some celebrations of fathers, I want to talk just for a moment about the tragedy that occurred Thursday at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church that forever changed that beautiful little gray wood church just down the road from us that sits in the woods. I've been struggling to think of what to say to you all today, so much so that I even called Robert and Bill last night. I'm sure they loved that Saturday night dinner interruption. I don't know what to say, I said. It's okay, they replied. There's no training in licensing school, no words in my book of worship, and doubtfully any training seminary can give me that would help me to prepare to talk about the needless pain that our community experienced on Thursday. I do know and have great faith that we have an excellent volunteer security team, and they greet you each Sunday, whether you know it or not. They are here long before any of you arrive and long after any of you leave. I know how much 
They care about each of you, the kind of people they are, and the hours of preparation and training they put into learning new and effective techniques about safety. But none of us lives in a bubble of safety, not in theaters, not in grocery stores, or concert halls, or even here. And that is and always has been a reality of our time on earth. The one thing I am sure of, though, is that we are not alone, and neither are the people of St. Stephen's. And the worst thing is never the last thing, thanks to our belief in a loving God. The 23rd Psalm penned by David is mostly used now at Christian and Jewish funerals, but it remains a psalm for us all, really. For those of us who are left still journeying and helping to pick up the pieces and using our God-given gifts to forge ahead and look for new ways to seek peace. It reminds us of our constant companion in all moments, those full of the most wonderful joy and excruciating pain. I recall reciting it each and every morning when I was in kindergarten at Grace St. Luke's Episcopal School in Memphis, Tennessee. I ask you to say it with me now as we prepare to go out into the world. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let us pray. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through faith, we have a new identity and a new unity. So we pray for our own congregation and for all the churches around the world. Specifically, we lift up our neighbor, St. Stephen's. We acknowledge this great mystery of oneness with Christ and with one another, and we ask that we might grow deeper in this mystery and live it out in a new and deeper way. Amen.